Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Ben Slavin joins us right now, global head of ETFs, speaking of, yep. um, and asset servicing at BNY Mellon, speaking of, out of NYC. Um, they've got $2.3 trillion of assets under management. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Um, you know, more and more, I conflate the world of ETFs with the crypto world. I know that's not really fair, but um, we do have... Uh, recently hyped new uh, ProShares Bitcoin ETF, as well as uh, Grayscale's uh, conversion of its Bitcoin trust into an ETF. What do you think about the two worlds colliding here? Well, we've seen quite a bit of convergence. Um, as you noted, Bitcoin ETFs made a dramatic entrance into the ETF market. So it was really another milestone for the ETF industry democratizing yet another asset class. And so it gives investors a new option uh, for those seeking exposure to cryptocurrencies, in this case, Bitcoin. And clearly there's pent up demand. Um, and you can see this convergence starting to happen to some degree here in real time, where the product that launched first set the all time record of fastest ETF to a billion dollars, did it in two days ironically topping the previous record holder, which was gold, uh, physical gold, GLD, back in 2004, which did it in three. And clearly, investors are not only preferring this access to crypto, but certainly doing so in the ETF structure, um, you know, as witnessed by the trading volume and the demand we've seen for the products. So, Ben, give us a sense of how the Graystale, as it converts from a trust to an ETF, how that will differ from the ProShares uh, Bitcoin ETF? Well, they're two very different things. So, you know, Grayscale um, obviously has been around uh, for a while and they announced their intent to convert uh, to an ETF. And Grayscale's Bitcoin trust holds the underlying Bitcoin. Um, but in the case of the ProShares product, and the other futures-based products, we saw another one um, launched by a firm called Valkyrie, and there are more behind it, are investing in futures. And there are some very uh, important differences that investors need to be aware of in terms of how they work and the risks and the returns they will receive. But most importantly, the futures ETFs don't hold Bitcoin. They hold a future. And there are costs to roll that futures contract, especially when, like we have now, the futures curves slopes upward and there's a cost so there will be some differences in how those products track um you know compared to a physical product um that's but like again, uso right correct um the bitcoin products will work very similar to the other products that uh investors um and etf investors know like uso or ung that are doing the same but they're holding oil and gas in those cases and the problem is you can you know, the underlying asset, you can invest in both and um, it, the convergence can be huge, like 10, 20 percent after even a year, right? Correct. And that is um, something that's hard to predict, driven by markets. And it will directly depend on the slope of the futures curve. 
Um, so it is a variable that investors need to be aware of. And certainly we've seen that in other markets um, where, you know, similar, um, you know, similar things have happened. Ben, do you think the regulators will get to the point where there can be a, a straight up ETF uh, with the underlying coin as opposed to the futures? Well, I mean, certainly the SEC allowed uh, the ProShares product to launch. And, you know, they got comfortable really for a couple reasons. One was the 1940 Act regulatory scheme, which is common to most mutual funds. And second, they were able to get comfortable with exchange-listed futures because they're regulated. And also it means that the ETF itself doesn't hold the underlying Bitcoin. So certainly there's going to be um, some work to be done to be able to get the SEC comfortable to allow ETFs to hold the Bitcoin directly. So we're going to look for that evolution uh, to occur to make sure those investor protections are in place, um, you know, again, before the SEC would get comfortable with those approvals. By the way, what was the pandemic like for ETF investing for the world of ETFs. You know, before the pandemic, I would sometimes go to these conferences um, for big ETF um, providers like Vanguard, for example, yep. and notice that the growth was just amazing. And because the kids, right, invest a lot of times um, through BTFs, they prefer passive, which is why I think of Vanguard um, investing, um, or they can do kind of active investing with different ETFs. Is it did, did growth continue like that throughout the pandemic? We've seen phenomenal growth. In fact, record-setting growth for the industry, as well as on our platform at BNY. So right now, um, we just hit $1 trillion in inflows into ETFs globally, um, a little more than $700 billion of that coming in the U.S., which is shattering the all-time records. We saw a record setting 2020, and again, we, we're seeing that uh, here in 21. So the, the flow has been incredible. Um, but we're also seeing a trend um, with new product development um, slowly shift away from passive towards actively managed strategies. And that is something we're seeing uh, pick up um, in terms of, you know, those products you know, accelerating with both the new new that are new products that are coming to market as well as the assets, and that's something I expect to continue. But certainly, the passive ETFs have a big lead on active, so there's quite a bit of ground for for those new products to make up, um, given where the market's at today. Hey Ben, thanks so much for joining us. We uh, really appreciate it. Ben Slavin, global head of ETFs and asset servicing at BNY Mellon. I mean, you have you know a couple of these that two fast-growing areas, it seems, of, of finance, which is one, ETFs, and two, uh, crypto. Makes sense to bring Getting them together. together. It's like peanut butter and chocolate, right? <laughs> exactly right. So uh, it'll be interesting to see you know, how many more come on the heels of the ProShares uh, ETF and then now the Graystale uh, conversion from a trust into an ETF. How many more will come down the pike? Yeah, and uh, it'll be interesting to also see how this affects the price of the underlying, right? Yep. If more institutional investors, yep. and this is the big bet that a lot of biz, uh, Bitcoin and crypto investors are making, that it'll become more adopted, not only institutionally, but just become a part of people's portfolios. Looking at Bitcoin here, $61,500, up about nine-tenths of 1%. Let's get to the big crypto story that seemingly everybody has been reading today and talking about at the water cooler. Wall Street is amassing a crypto army and paying up 
for recruits. Zizia Song wrote this with Kat Doherty, and we have Kat here in the uh, Interactive Broker Studio with us. So, Kat, I think it's really interesting because I've been covering uh, Bitcoin since it first breached $1,000, and it was I did a kind of a fun two-week piece where I only spent Bitcoin. I didn't spend any U.S. dollars. And, and that I, was a while ago when that wasn't it, a thing, right? No, that, nobody else was... Well, there were there were some like there was a grocery store in Greenpoint, and there was a bar down in Murray Hill, and I wore plaid blazers, and it was fun, you know. <laughs> but it wasn't that serious, and of course, all the real yep. Wall Street guys kind of poo pooed the story. Now they're, I guess, hiring these crypto kids who at the time were like couch surfing, paper <laughs> millionaires, and uh, and now are the only ones who know what they're doing. That's right. And we're also seeing folks that are in these financial, like traditional financial roles that are getting recruited to exclusively focus on crypto. So you have you have both. It's not just the couch surfing millennials, <laughs> youngers that are getting hired to go to these banks. The banks are also acknowledging, hey, look, we have clients that are asking us what's going on. We need answers. So they are building teams that can bring the knowledge. And I think that goes both ways. It's, it's not just going from the outside. In fact, often you need the institutional background. You need someone that knows how to work in a corporate job. You can't just go out and, and, and find someone who's never been in an office setting before. Oh, so you get somebody like... Um, like a Mike McGlone, who was at S&P, who was at ABN, um, and now is working for us in Bloomberg Intelligence and knows everything about crypto. <laughs> exactly. Um, and you also have just folks that have uh, been working. I, I spoke with the um, lead at Bank of America who's building the team, and he has just this this desire this this hunger for knowledge to learn more and more about crypto so he's been in a traditional research role and now he's tasked with building a team that is exclusively about crypto but it's it 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 goes beyond just crypto it's how does crypto touch all of these other sectors that bank of america already covers so his pitch to me was that our clients are asking, okay, maybe I don't want to get involved in a cryptocurrency, but I do realize that this is starting to touch the industries that I invest in, whether it's like energy or, or others, really anything. Um, there's, there's no escaping how crypto is bleeding into traditional finance. And so these banks are saying, okay, with that acknowledgement, we're going to need to to get the experts. We're going to need to come up with the the answers and the research that can serve our client base. And I think J.P. Morgan is one of my favorite examples. They're hiring. They're gearing up uh, their trading desk. Yet their CEO Jamie Dimon, as recently as last month, called Bitcoin worthless. <laughs> it is funny to see how the leaders view crypto um, and then the the action, right? Um, because they're not always aligned. That's a good example. Um, but I, I would just say that even if there's the belief um, from a CEO or even like the a leader of the research team at these banks that's saying, oh, we don't want to specifically, you know, jump into Bitcoin or maybe there's hesitation. Well, there's also the acknowledgement of, okay, if you have 
again, clients, people that are asking, or you're yeah. having to answer these questions, you can't just say, oh, sorry, we're ignoring this entirely. And you can go ask someone else. Well, that's how you, that's how you lose business. Yeah. So there's, there's that answer. Yeah. I mean, well. this really, it, t in some ways it demonstrates what a good leader Jamie Dimon can be because yeah. he has his personal opinion and he also runs the bank. Yep. And, uh, he's, you know, he says that you could say it's not worthless. It takes two people to make a market. Right. Um, how much cat are people getting to to move right now? What because Asking this is a, a, friend, a, a tight <laughs> this is a tight labor market. People are already getting big bumps to move jobs. Right. So it depends on how senior role we're talking about. Um, for for the more senior roles like research trading heads, that could be a premium as much as. 50%. Um, but others, there's salary increases. It varies, as you know, you, you would expect. Um, we, we saw some increases from the data that we were given um, of about 9% in new roles um, versus their previous roles. So I think it all depends on the person, their experience level, um, also how committed these uh, institutional firms, uh, financial firms are to, to really spending the money and, and getting the talent. Where are they getting these people from? <laughs> Depends. We talked to uh, a lot of people that were at like a BlackRock or um, Brookfield or uh, or at a, at a traditional bank like a J.P. Morgan, yep. um, Bank of America. Um, and then we also spoke with a lot of folks that have gone over to crypto firms I some of them you could consider startups some of them are crypto like hedge funds mm -hmm. um, so it's going both ways and I think that is the tension that I'm interested in tracking next because as Wall Street is looking to to gain that talent they're also losing that talent yep. to the crypto yep. firms yep. Yeah, absolutely um, it's almost like the banks versus fintechs um, especially yep. if uh, most of the fintechs start to dabble in crypto are already are doing it. Kat Doherty helped to write that story. It's a huge Good hit stuff. on the Bloomberg terminal. Wall Street is amassing a crypto army. Now I want to get back to politics, but uh, bring it from Glasgow to Washington in a sense and talk about the, uh, what did they call it? The, um, it wasn't, it was a, a framework, a framework, a framework, yes. framework. Yes. Uh, President Biden's framework, uh, $1.75 trillion framework, although over 10 years is starting to gather some steam. Congressional tax reporter, Laura Davidson joins us out of DC to talk about, um, when we can expect a vote. I guess that's what everyone wants to know. When is this thing actually going to happen, Laura? That's a, a real good question. House leaders were hoping that they could do something, you know, as soon as this week. That's a super ambitious timeline. Over the weekend, they were thinking they might be able to vote on Tuesday, you know, tomorrow. Um, the bill is not yet written. There's still not agreement on some of the big pieces like drug pricing, um, as well as, uh, you know, some of the, some of the other their pay-fors. So it's really unclear when there's going to be a vote. There also are, you know, a lot of political considerations here. Uh, you need to have both the moderates and progressives on board with the entire bill. Uh, and this is something that really could be, you know, weeks, if not months away. Unbelievable. So, Laurie, I mean, what's the sense here? You think about a one point seven five trillion. Uh, that's not a lot to the you know the the Matt Millers of the world, but that's a big number to me. However, it's well down from what the Biden administration initially asked. What's the and from what we need in terms of America to I, invest in infrastructure? I don't. Yeah, I'm not sure what the right number is, but it's certainly below what I think the administration really wanted. Does this suggest that the the administration will kind of take whatever deal they can get at this point? 
Yeah, and this is really the political reality of only having, you know, a you know three, four-seat majority in the House as well as, uh, you know, basically having no room for error in the Senate is they, you know, couldn't get all the things that the administration wanted. You know, when you look at the plans that Biden put out in the spring, you know, that was something like maybe $6 trillion, maybe even more of spending that he was outlining there. Um, that got curled curtailed back to $3.5 trillion in a deal that was reached earlier this year, and now, you know, cut in half again, uh, $1.75 trillion. There's, you know, the $550 billion worth of infrastructure spending. Uh, this is the hard infrastructure, you know, things like uh, roads and bridges and airports approved in the Senate earlier this year. And now the, the kind of the second piece that they're figuring out is, you know, how much to spend on things like education and child care and health care. And that's looking like, you know, it's, it's 1.75 is going to be the top number there. And I guess this is the important distinction, Laura, because I had lunch with a Republican uh, lobbyist last week who was saying we need a lot more than two or three or four trillion spent on infrastructure in the U.S. to be competitive. But he was thinking of infrastructure as what's in the first bill and not appreciating what's in this bill um, in terms of you know, the label infrastructure. What are people in Washington calling this? They're really, you know, they've been calling it the social infrastructure or the human infrastructure bill. That's kind of been the branding. You hear Democrats say a lot of things, you know, that housing is infrastructure or childcare is infrastructure. The idea that these things are all, you know, key tenants that support the economy. Uh, but the, the definition of infrastructure has been sort of a running joke in Washington this year is that it's really not been, you know, kind of what has traditionally been thought about as infrastructure, but really expanded to include a lot of things, um, you know, that do kind of do have a, you know, kind of infrastructure component, things like renewable energy and, uh, you know, job training, that sort of thing, as well as, you know, kind of a whole host of democratic priorities. So, you know, I'm not really sure who I need to be focusing on, Laura, over these, you know, this next week or several weeks about like, who's going to really get this thing done? I'm not sure it's the president. Is it Pelosi? Is it Manchin? Is, I mean, who do I need to be focusing on here? So there's a couple key players here, and these are really the parties that are, that are not yet satisfied with the bill. One, that's Cinema and Mansion. They have not come out. They came out and sort of expressed general, um, you know, warmness that there was, you know, progress and that a deal was being made. But they didn't actually endorse that framework that the president put out last week. So that's those are two parties to watch. If you know, what do they need to get fully on board? The other person here on the other side of the spectrum is, is Senator Bernie Sanders. And he wants to make sure there's something done on drug pricing. That was not in the bill. There were lots of negotiations over the weekend to try to come up with some sort of deal uh, to lower the cost of prescription drugs. We'll see if that can make it in. Um, the other big thing, and this is, you know, sort of on a, a whole different playing field, but it's the state and local tax deduction. Uh, a lot of members, particularly in the House, you know, representing yep. areas, New York, New Jersey, want to make sure that an expansion of that tax credit or that, that tax deduction is in there. Uh, it wasn't in the framework, but House leaders have pledged they'll get it in, and they pretty much have to if they want to get that bill out of the chamber. And this has to be, again, something that they can agree on in a bipartisan way. Surely Republicans um, want that tax deduction to be expanded as well. So this bill actually doesn't have to be bipartisan at all. Democrats are pushing it through in a way that they only need Democratic votes, but they basically need every Democrat uh, to vote yes for it. The, the, bipart the, the infrastructure bill, the kind of the roads and bridges bill, that was a bipartisan effort. But the social infrastructure bill, this is just a, a partisan Democrats only um, approach. So you, you and you actually, you know, so you have Demo it's really easy for Republicans right now because they're yep. in the opposition. They're in the minority. They can just uh, criticize the bill. They don't actually have to, right. to vote for anything. All right, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your updates. Laura Davison, congressional tax reporter for Bloomberg News. 
Let's get back to the, uh, well, I guess he was talking about the markets, but let's focus more in on the markets right now. We have Veronica Willis with us, investment strategy analysis, uh, uh, analyst, I should say, from Wells Fargo Investment Institute out of St. Louis. And in terms of what's important, Veronica, and good morning, thanks for joining us, for uh, markets today, it seems like tech is really showing how much power, big tech is showing how much power it has. How do you feel about the... Uh, mega cap names good morning and thank you for having me on you know with tech we've seen that they're you know overshooting their earnings expectations and the earnings season has been really good for those tech companies so far and that's really helped bolster the markets over the last week or so with those big tech names really doing well and really helping with market performance there's such a heavy weighting in a lot of these U.S. Mark, um, U.S. equity indexes. Big moves in those um, particular companies tend to move the market as well. Veronica, we're you know a good ways through this third quarter earnings season. Um, what are your takeaways? Um, the takeaways are that even though some consumer confidence type of data that came out over the last quarter started to weaken a little bit from the recovery that we saw from 2020 that consumers are still spending. And so it's always you've always got to be careful about that confidence measure. While consumers might not be so confident, their spending patterns are somewhat indicating otherwise, where a lot of these companies are able to report these earnings that have beat expectations or earnings that are doing well because consumers are still comfortable in spending money. And so I think that that's the biggest takeaway from the earnings season here, where a, a lot of these companies um, – and the entertainment and sort of the discretionary types of uh, companies are still doing well because consumers are still really comfortable spending. Yeah, we saw also savings rates soar for a second during the lockdown. Of course, you couldn't really spend money very well for <laughs> for a while, but they're still right. above historical estimates in the U.S. I think about nine percent historically, at least um, in recent you know in recent decades, we've seen about seven and change. Do you expect consumers to spend off the rest of that, or are we in a new paradigm? I think that as we kind of enter the holiday shopping season, we can start to see some of that coming down. But it might be that we've seen a shift in how people view saving, what they've experienced in 2020 might have changed how they view making sure that they've got that safety net. And so we could see some kind of elevated levels of savings, but the holiday season will be um, really crucial in determining whether that's a short-term or a long-term type of uh, shift. Hey, Veronica, we just had the, the big tech names report earnings last week. Generally, good, good numbers, although relative, you know, some folks had some concerns about some of the social media companies' numbers. But do I stick with big tech, those names, those great top-line growth stories? Or do I, you know, kind of go with the folks that have been saying, hey, you need to be in that more cyclical trade, that reopening trade? Where are you telling your clients to, to think about opportunities going forward? We've definitely made a shift towards those more cyclical sectors because that's what we think will perform the best at the point that we are in the economy. The, we've had such an impressive run-up with tech that sometimes you worry about just feeding more into that. And you know, we still like tech as a sector. We're neutral there, so we're recommending for our clients to have kind of a market weighting in that sector, which is still pretty significant. And so you're still going to benefit from those tech companies. 
But we don't want our clients to overextend themselves in that particular area because we do think that those cyclical sectors will do really well. So when you look at um, 2022 and try and factor in what inflation is going to be like, which side of the transitory argument do you fall on? Um, We think that inflation will remain elevated through 2022. Looking out a little further, you know, past 2022 is a little murkier, but we do think that those rates are going to remain elevated through the rest of this year and next year. And then maybe after next year, we'll have some more clarity and expect that to trend a little bit more towards the averages that we've been seeing pre-pandemic. But we do think that, you know, those inflation numbers are going to be elevated through this year and next. Veronica, I got WTI crude oil pushing $85 a gallon. Have I missed the energy trade? I think that energy could remain elevated. I don't think that you have missed the trade. I think it's expected to still perform well with prices at current levels, even if prices don't continue to move higher. Um, If you're looking at energy types of stocks, with oil itself, it's so dependent on what would happen in the supply and demand side. So there are a lot of uncertainties if more supply starts to come online, that could really push the price down lower. But what we're seeing is that really strong demand for crude yeah. oil and for its uh, refined products like gasoline, yeah. heating oil, and those other types of things. And so that kind of pushes the prices higher. And so you could see it kind of range bound around okay. the current levels right now. All right. Well, yeah. Matt's had a good run with it. He's been playing Bitcoin. I've been playing Dude. WTI crude. Dude, <laughs> President Biden's motorcade had more than 85 cars in it this morning. Nice. <laughs> There's demand for you. All right, Veronica Willis, Investment Strategy Analyst for Wells Fargo. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.